All right, if you guys want to go ahead and take your seats, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 5 this morning. Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. And before we get started, I just want to share a a thank you here. As uh, many of you know, uh, Gene Rudder uh, passed away here this last week, and that's... uh, Miles' mom and Paula's mom that worship out here with us, and it just says, thank you for the gift of the three Bibles to the Gideons and the memory of our mother Jean, and this is from Miles and Linda Rudder and the whole Rudder family as well, so keeping them in prayer too uh, during the season of mourning and loss there too. So Proverbs chapter 5, let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, you teach, we listen. Let your spirit lead, guide, and direct, and give us ears to hear, not just to hear, but to learn it, to apply it, to live it, and all we say and do. And we say thank you, Lord. Let the enemy be bound and you be glorified in your name. Amen. Part of the beauty of teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible is you get to cover everything. Now, that also means you get to cover certain topics that you don't really want to cover. That's the beauty sometimes of when I look at this of saying of the topical, I would just skip certain whole chapters, certain whole stories. But yet there's this beauty in going through this and saying, okay, Lord, this is your word, and this needs to be taught, this needs to be heard, this needs to be reminded. The message this morning is one of those messages. We're going to do all of chapter 5 of Proverbs, and a good chunk of chapter 6, and a good chunk of chapter 7. Because it deals with the entire same topic, and it's a difficult topic to teach on. It's the topic of being pure. Pure in marriage, pure in life, pure in the Lord. It brings up the idea of adultery, it brings up the idea of all these things, and it's a difficult topic to talk about. And so there's a couple of things I just want to say this before we get into this. Is if you're in married life today, we want you to be pure in your married life. If you're single, we want you to be pure in being single. If you're stopping and saying, I don't even need to worry about that. I'm in a completely different season of life. You don't have to worry about purity. I want you to be spiritually pure. See, one of the things that they ran into the Old Testament that Israel was guilty of is they were guilty of this idea that we call spiritual adultery. They were not pure with the Lord. They were considered married to God, just like we're considered married to Jesus here in the New Testament. And so therefore, when we spiritually move away from the Lord, it's that idea of spiritual adultery. and We need to be pure spiritually, physically, married, single, whatever it is. Please remember what it says in Hebrews 13. Marriage is honorable in the bed undefiled. That is something that we need to constantly remind the generations coming up and remind ourselves. Now, with that being said, I want to share some verses before we get into this because I think this is important. I know how the enemy works. The Bible says not be ignorant of his devices. Please remember if you're here this morning and this has happened in your life where there were seasons where there was not purity, please remember 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Please remember that sins are forgiven and they're cast into the depths of the ocean as far as the east is from the west. Please remember that. If you are here this morning and maybe you were in a marriage where there was that, there was not purity, and you were on the end that was hurt, please remember Joel 2.25, God can restore to years the locust state. Please remember Isaiah 61 where it says that God will give beauty for ashes. Oneness in marriage, intimacy is important. And when that's broken, according to Mark 10 and Matthew 19, that is grounds for divorce. It's a difficult area, and that's why we need to remember the love, grace, mercy of being a new creation in the Lord. We also need to remember the promises that God says in Joel 2 and Isaiah 61. He can restore the earth. He can give beauty for ashes. We want that spiritual oneness with God. We want that oneness in marriage. We want that. And so this message covers all those areas. So whatever season you're in, there's something in there for you. So we're going to go through this, and the way we're going to go through this is we're going to start backwards and end with our big point first. Go to Proverbs 7, please. 
We're going to start in Proverbs 5, but Proverbs 7 is where we need to go. The idea of purity, be it spiritual purity, physical purity. Please note the dangers of when that does not happen. Proverbs 7, 26. For she, she meaning this idea of being impure, this idea of not being faithful to God, to the spouse, be it male, female. She has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. That slays strong men. That's what we're going to talk about here to start out with before we get into this. Please go with me to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. Slays strong men. In the years that I've been a pastor, there's been pastors that I have met personally, know them personally, followed their teachings, met them at pastor's conferences, been to their churches, talked to them, loved them, talked to them a lot, that have fallen in this area. And it's absolutely, utterly crushing. It's sad. It's difficult. It's hard. And so before we start thinking anything about, well, this is beyond me, pride goes before a fall. And we need to realize that Proverbs 7 just told me that strong men are brought down by this. I have some examples of a strong man brought down by this. The first one, the most famous one, is 2 Samuel 11. It's David. Take a look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David went, sent, and required about this woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her away, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. If we had time, it would be great to go into the details of all this, but we don't have time to do that for the amount of material we want to cover. Let's just say this. David is wrong on so many levels. David was a strong man. Devotion to God in the Bible. Man after God's own heart. David, the heart of David, wrote the Psalms. And just this heart. Look what he's doing wrong. Verse 1. It's the time of the spring when kings go out to battle. David, go out to battle. Lead your troops. Be the leader. No, he sends out Joab, his nephew, to be the, the leader of the military. David remained at Jerusalem. You see a laziness developing. Verse 2, it happened one evening, David arose from bed. Why is he getting out of bed in the evening? Why is he doing that? There's a laziness that's going on. And he sees Bathsheba. And he looks at Bathsheba. He sends for Bathsheba. How old is David at this point? We don't know the exact age. We can figure he's probably at the absolute youngest, probably about 40, and probably at the absolute oldest in his early 50s. He knows a lot better. He sure knows a lot better. He sends for Bathsheba. He asks who it is. It's Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You need to know a little bit of detail here. Uriah is one of David's mighty men, which means that David probably served in combat with Uriah. He knew Uriah. We also know from studying out the Bible that one of David's chief counselors was Bathsheba's grandpa. It's probably quite possible that he knew her. Not from a distance, maybe he didn't, but once he knew who she was, that's the granddaughter of my counselor, And that's the wife of one of my mighty men. I still want her. Sent for her, verse 4. She came over. Now you would think it's just all said and done, right? Verse 5. And the woman conceived. So she sent until David and said, I am with child. So now David says, okay, i got to figure some way to cover this up. So i got this great idea. I'm going to bring Uriah back from the battle. Uriah's going to come home. He's going to be so happy to be home. He's going to go spend the night with his wife. Everything's covered up. We just got it all taken care of. Uriah comes home, and Uriah is too honorable to go be with his wife. He says, this isn't right. So David says, i got to get Uriah drunk. So Uriah gets drunk, and Uriah passes out. 
So David says, i got nothing else left. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell Joab, the commander of the army, hey, send Uriah into the hottest part of the battle. Bring back all the troops so Uriah is left by himself, and Uriah will be killed. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 26, same chapter. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. All covered up now. I'm a great guy. I bring in the widow. Oh, look what happened. Honeymoon baby. She's pregnant right away. So we have a child here right away. Everything's great. Everything's fine. Except God knows. And what happens now in chapter 12 is David is now approached by Nathan the prophet. His sin is called out. His child ends up dying. David writes Psalm 51, this amazing psalm of repentance. And then what happens is for the rest of David's life, he has problems in his family because of this, the fruit of this choice. He was a strong man that was brought down. He was forgiven, but he was a strong man that was brought down. How about another one? Can you go with me now to 1 Kings 11? 1 Kings 11. First Kings 11, we talked about David, who was a strong man in the Lord, man after God's own heart. Now we have in First Kings 11, we have his son Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, his father was David, who was the wisest man that ever lived. He had the wisdom of God. Talk about strength. What did he do with the wisdom of God? First Kings 11.1. 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidions, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. Strong man in wisdom brought down again. Same thing. One example more. Can you go with me now to Judges, please? Judges 14. Judges 14 tells us about Samson. The strongest physical man. So we had David that you can make a case. The man after God's own heart. Maybe the strongest spiritual lover of the Lord. Then you had Solomon who was the wisest man. And now you have Samson who is the strongest man. Now it's been a lot of years since I've taught Sunday school. And I'm just fascinated by the story of Samson. Because Samson is just beloved. Especially by young boys. It's this idea of superhuman strength and his fights, his exploits. But I always wonder as a Sunday school teacher. What good do you say about Samson? There's not a lot of good. Take a look at this. Judges 14, verse 1. Now Samson went down to Timon and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Philistines, bad people, stay away. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. That's what I want. Mom comes back, verse 3. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Basically, the mom's saying, Can't you get a good Jewish girl? No, I want the Philistine. And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. Flesh, I want her. Not just that, go to Judges 16, verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. He saw her, he wanted her. He took her. 
When the Gaziites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying in the morning when it is daylight we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two gateposts pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Strongest man that ever lived, brought down by the flesh, by lust, and by women. Verse 4, afterward it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorak, bad area again, whose name was Delilah. I love studying out details of the Bible. Delilah's name means feeble. The strongest man that ever lived was taken down by a woman named Feeble. Now, before you think this is a message against women, it's not, because I'm also going to say you've got to be careful of the men, ladies. It goes both ways. The point that Proverbs is trying to tell us now, going back to Proverbs 7, That last verse that we're going to get to that sums it all up. This idea of strength. What is it? Proverbs 7, please read it with me again. Verse 26, she has cast down many wounded. All who were slain by her were strong men. David, man after God's own heart. Solomon, wisest man that ever lived. Samson, the strongest man that ever lived. All brought down. Satan does not change his tactics. Thousands of years later, it's still the same thing. Men and women are brought down in the same area, and this is why it's important to teach purity. Purity in marriage, purity in life, purity as a single, purity as married, spiritual purity as well. And that's what we're going to get in here today in Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7. Please remember once again, I know the enemy. He's going to want to play mind games. You're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins. He cast them into the depths of the ocean as far as the east is from the west. I also do know that Joel can restore the years of locust aid. He can also give beauty for ashes. Please remember those verses. And as you go home today, that's what the enemy is going to want to remind some of you on. Remember the power and the strength of God's word. So with that being said, Proverbs 5, verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion, and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell, lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable. You do not know them. Look at the description there, verse 3. Drips honey, sweet, smooth like oil. That idea of sweetness, that idea of smoothness, there's an attraction to that. Be careful. Be careful. I heard a pastor at a pastor's conference one time talking about women, and he was not being inappropriate in any way whatsoever. He goes, women. He goes, they smell nice. They speak softly. Their touch is gentle. He goes, that's why I'm not attracted to a man. They don't smell nice. They don't touch gentle. They don't speak nice. He wasn't being weird. He's saying there's something about that. There's that sweetness. There's that smoothness. Verse 4, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. There's a bitterness that comes when it's not in the proper context. I go back to this example I use a lot, the idea of fire. Fire in a fireplace is warm, inviting, cozy, gives light. It's nice. Fire in the middle of your living room floor is destructive. It's destructive. In the proper context... The idea of love and oneness is pure and beautiful. Once again, marriage is honorable in the bed undefiled. In the improper context, it is absolutely destructive. And this is where we need to remember that. It's difficult. It's hard. In the world we live in today, we're, I shouldn't say probably, we're the minority on this issue of what is pure and what is moral. 
And that's why it's important to teach this every now and then. This is the beauty of going verse by verse where these things come up. Because when the idea of marriage comes up, marriage is pretty much so tossed to the side nowadays. It's really not that big a deal. You know, Dawn and I have been married 22 years. We got married when we were 19 and loved it. Just the Lord brought us together. We knew the Lord brought us together. And why wait? Just why wait? Let's just get married here and enjoy the season in life together. Nowadays, you, you, don't, you don't see that a lot. That idea of just that desire for marriage. And I just want to share this with you. If you're ever talking to someone where this comes up, this is just what I've seen and heard over the years. I hear so much stuff. Why get married? It doesn't really matter anyway. It's just a piece of paper, whatever. You know, you need to go study out your Bible. It matters to God. It's, it's, a picture. it's not just a piece of paper to him. It's something important. He wants the body of Christ to be involved with it. He wants the accountability. He wants that. That's how he's designed it. Number two, I use this example a lot when speaking to couples that are together and they're like maybe living together. I ask them if they come in, they want to talk about stuff. I say this. I say, listen, um, when you're married, are you going to date other people? And they always say, well, no, of course not. I said, so when you're married, you're not going to date other people. So I said, so husband, you know, or husband-to-be or whoever, I said, so your, your girl comes home, you're now married, and um, she says, I met this great guy at work, and we're going to go out Friday on a date. Are you okay with that husband? Well, of course not. No. Okay, so you're not okay being married and acting like you're single. Of course not. Then why are you single acting like you're married? There, there is an ordaining to this of where you say God has blessed this. And it really comes down to this. It's not being judgmental. It's not being attacking. It's wanting God's best for people. And God's best is to do it his way. And when you do it his way, God honors that. And this is what you see in these passages. God honors it when we do it his way. Verse 7, therefore hear me now, my children, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. So ladies, stay away from those guys. Guys, stay away from those ladies. What happens when you do? Nine, lest you give your honor to others, your years to the cruel one. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, how I have hated instruction and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Look at what is lost. What is lost is your honor is lost, verse 9. Your years are lost. Verse 10, your possessions are lost. What happens? You end up in that idea of mourning, that idea of sadness, 11, when you mourn at last. It's not worth it. It's not. What are you supposed to do then? If you're married, stay focused on your spouse. If you're not married, stay pure in the Lord. Stay spiritually pure. 15, drink water from your own cistern. And running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed or broad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be on you, excuse me, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? The oneness that's supposed to be in marriage. 15, drink water from your own cistern. And running water from your own well. 17. Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. The idea of the oneness and the joy that can be in marriage. And I looked up that word rejoice looking for something deeper. And rejoice just means rejoice. <laughs> it's joy. It's just joy. They're the joy of, of marriage. That's what it's supposed to be. And I tell you, the joy of, of that oneness, there was spouse where you stop and you say, Lord, this is the blessing that you've given us. 
And I tell you, as Dawn and I are married longer and longer, I'm not trying to be silly when I say this. I just, just love her more and more. Just there's that joy of just who she is. I joke a lot about her, and I just need to say this because this popped up one time. You know I tell lots of stories, joke about a lot of things. So there, years ago, there was somebody that came up and wanted to talk about maybe doing some marriage counseling. And I said, sure. I said, I'd be willing to sit down with you, you know, whatever you want. And they said, I don't, I don't know. And I'm thinking, okay, if you don't want to do that with me, that's, that's fine. I can find somebody else. I said, you know, I'm not offended. They said, well, they said, I just the way you kind of talk about Dawn, I don't know what your marriage is like. I said, you, you do realize I'm joking, right? I mean, I'm not really like from the pulpit saying, oh, she's awful, help me. No, I'm making, making a joke, but they really thought, so I just want to make this clear. Just make this clear. She is awful, but I love her, and I just love her. But there's this idea of oneness, 15 through 20, and supposed to be enraptured with her love, 19. Wives enraptured with your husband, husbands enraptured with your wives. That word raptured is a fascinating word. Ravished, enraptured, captivated, literally intoxicated. That you're just around them. You're like, you just, I just love you. There's just this love that's there and the blessing that comes from that oneness that once again is only in marriage. Because marriage is honorable in the bed undefiled. Now, he continues talking about this. Jump ahead to Proverbs 6, verse 20. And it's not that we're skipping these other things, because we're going to come back and hit them, but it's important to do all these verses at once. Proverbs 6, 20, My son, keep your father's command. Do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Now, introduction to that. When I walk, 20, it leads me. When I sleep, God's word keeps me. When I'm awake, God's word speaks to me. It's a lamp. It's a light. It keeps me safe. It keeps me on the right path. And to make his example, Solomon, what's it keep me from, 24? To keep you from the evil woman. See, Solomon said it's that big a deal. Get in the word to stay pure. Get in the word to know the right path. And not just physically, but spiritually. Lord, I want to be in your word to stay on the right path. This is what I've seen. When I see people start getting off track, they're not in the word. They may be in in their own idea of the word. They may be thinking they are, but they're really not in this book that leads them, guides them, and directs them. That's what we need. So to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart. No, let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Look at what they use, the men or the women there, 24, flattering tongue, the idea of beauty, 25, the flirtation, the eyelids, etc. Got to be careful. You got to be so, so careful with this. You know, I remember hearing a teaching years ago. Uh, Jim actually gave it to me. I remember I just got saved. I was about 16, 17 years old. And it was a teaching from a man by the name of Romaine. That uh, Romaine was very famous in this circle for just his very direct, blunt truth. Done in love, but straightforward. If I remember correctly, he used to be a Marine Corps drill instructor. And he was kind of the assistant pastor and under Chuck Smith. And he had this very directness of how he presented things. And so Jim had me listen to this message one time. And it was about this. The flattering tongue, the, the beauty, the allure. And, I, and I've never forgotten this message. Because he, Romaine made these points that at 16, 17, I didn't think too much about. But now, at 41, I stop and I realize what he's saying. 
He made a first point. The first point was this. I'll just share it. He goes, you pastors. He goes, you ever realize how many pastors have beards? He goes, you're so ugly, you know you need to cover up your face. That's just kind of the way that he would present things. And I've never forgot that. But he goes on to teach. He goes, you pastors, back when you were in junior high or high school, when you got done with your class, were the girls lining up outside the door to talk to you? He goes, no, they weren't. Because did you have a hard time getting a prom date? Probably. Did you have so many girls lining up for you that you didn't know what to do? He goes, no. He goes, now you're a pastor, what happens? You have women lining up for you after every message. He goes, have you gotten prettier? He goes, no, you haven't. He goes, what's changed? And he went on to teach this point of being careful. Being careful because what happens is this, and I understand, and please hear me out when I say this, I think back, I heard a message one time by John Hagee, and if you can imagine what John Hagee looks like. John Hagee stood up and he says, listen, he goes, I want you to know, women, you're not attracted to this. You're attracted to what I stand for. And what happens is if the woman is having a hard time with her husband and her husband is not praying with her, her husband's not encouraging her, husband's not loving her as Christ loves the church, and all of a sudden there's a guy that, oh, I'll pray with you. I'll encourage you. I'll support you. That can be dangerous. That can be. And what happens is there has to come a time and a place where I have to stop and say, okay, I I can't counsel a woman one-on-one. I don't go out to eat with women one-on-one. I, I just can't do that type of stuff. You know, we can talk, you know, at the back of the sanctuary, we can talk up here, and I'm probably going to say, hey, here's a gal that I think could really do a good job ministering to you, because Titus 2 says that the older women minister to the younger women. And so what happened is, is this. I remember one time years ago, somebody wanted to talk, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll talk to you. I said, I'm going to have Dawn come along. And they were quite offended by that. And I said, why does Dawn need to be there? And I said, well, you know, here's my policy. I don't like to do this. I like to keep it pure. She goes, so you're saying I'm a threat? I said, no, you're not a threat. Trust me, she wasn't. I said, you're not a threat. I said, I said, the enemy's a threat. I said, that's who's a threat, is the enemy's a threat. And so this idea of flattering tongue, beauty in the heart, alluring with the eyelids, listen, there's a power. And I'm, I'm going to talk from the perspective of a man, because I'm assuming you ladies can say there's a power to the idea of a man as well. But there's a, there's a power to that, the charms of a woman. Where they can have that, and that is something where the enemy does not have to change his strategy. It's worked for thousands of years. It took down David, it took down Solomon, and it took down Samson. And you know what? As I said at the beginning of the message, I personally know pastors that have taken it down, been taken down by it. It's still around today. And so that's why it says, verse 27, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her should not be innocent. You can't take fire and get, not get burned. You can't walk on hot coals and not get burned. It's going to hurt. It's going to be called pain. It's not worth it. 30, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself and he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense. nor will be appeased, though you give him many gifts. You're going to get burned. And so what we end up with here today is this, in Proverbs 7, is an example. It's a story, if you will, of how this happens. Proverbs 7, verse 6. For at the window of my house I looked through my lattice and I saw among the simple and perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding. This does not mean the man was not intelligent. It means he wasn't thinking. He was simple. He was naive. Passing along the street near her corner, he took the path to her house. Gals, 
Don't go to his house. Guys, don't go to her house. Stay away from him at work. Stay away from him in any area you need to. Stay away. Stay away from the house. Nine, in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Why does it always talk about darkness and night? Because that's when we like to cover up our tracks. If we don't think it's wrong, we don't hide it. When we think it's wrong, we hide it. And I've used this joke many times. If one of my boys is ever behind the couch, I know it's never good. There's nothing to do behind the couch except trouble. If you're going behind the couch, you're doing something wrong. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black, in the dark of night, this is just not good. There a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. Now this is a hard one to teach on. Can you go with me now to 1 Timothy 2? It's hard to teach on this because there's not a black and white answer on this. 1 Timothy 2. And I prayed a lot on this. How do we present this? How do we present this? 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. We'll start in verse 8. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women, professing godliness with good works. So verse 9, what's the definition of modest apparel? We know it's something, because it's not just randomly. It's Proverbs 7, she is dressed in the entire of a harlot. Verse 9, it's saying there's supposed to be modest apparel, that that's how we're supposed to dress. What's the answer to that? Does modest apparel mean the person's right with the Lord? You know, we go up to Dearborn every year and do outreach amongst the Muslims. You go up there and you see the full burqas, just the isolate, that's all. That's pretty modest apparel. And I'm telling you right now, their heart's not right with the Lord. You know, there are certain denominations amongst the Christian faith that have some very strict rules. Dresses, sleeves down to here, makeup, etc., hair. Is the heart right? I don't know. See, the interesting thing about this definition of modest apparel is if you read these verses out and study it out, it goes right along with 10 of professing godliness with good works. The word is not just talking about how you present yourself on the outside. It's how you present yourself on the inside. It's talking about how you have that heart for the Lord. One definition was this, not desiring to bring sin to others by her attire. Now, this can affect men as well, too, men watching how we dress, but generally men are very visual. So it usually falls amongst the ladies. Now, just get this out in the open so that way those guys don't get angry at me. I always have to say this. Men don't look. Every time I teach on this, women's like, you've got to get on the men and tell them not to look. All right, men, don't look. It's sinful, it's wrong, it's lusting. Women, don't give us something to look at, okay? Let's be a team here together. This idea of not desiring to bring sin to others by her attire, regard for others. Now, would it be nice to have a little black and white list that God would update every year as fashions change? It would be nice. It doesn't. So what's modest? Sometimes people wear stuff that's too short. Sometimes they wear stuff that's too tight. Sometimes they wear stuff that's too low. Everybody has a different opinion of what that is. I tell you this, I'm asking you ladies, and I'm asking you men as well, to really pray over what that word modest is. And I want you to really understand it is modest apparel, but it's also verse 10, proper for women professing godliness with good works. What does that look like? Now, I know some people out here really would love it if I would just stop and say, okay, here's the list. You can't wear this. You can't wear that. That becomes legalism. 
And that's not our goal. Our goal is to point and present Jesus Christ to you. I know some of you that probably wouldn't buy Mrs. Butterworth syrup because you think she's inappropriate. And that's, you know, it bothers you, you know. She's got to cover up more. So, you know, everybody's got their thing. I think what it comes down to is this, a couple things. I'm just going to be straightforward here, and I don't think I'm unbiblical on this. Dads, if you've got young gals at home, before they leave the house, look them over. How they look? Are things too short, things too tight, things too low? Husbands, look over your wives as well. Things too tight, things too short, things too low? Take a look at that and see. Ladies, pray. What is modest apparel? What does it mean to have that with godliness? With godliness. Because there is something about the way people dress. If there wasn't, Paul wouldn't have mentioned it. Wouldn't talk about the, the attire of a harlot in Proverbs chapter 7. Back to Proverbs 7, please. Verse 10, there was a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent face. And she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I paid my vows. So I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face. And I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, covered, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. He will come home on the appointed day. Now, look at what all is going on here. This idea of the simple naive that gets him in trouble, goes to the house where he shouldn't be. Verse 10, you have the dress, you have the seduction, and then it becomes the idea of physical. Verse 12, she was where she shouldn't be. She was outside, times in the open square, looking at every corner. 13, it becomes physical. And then 14, one pastor used this term, called her the holy harlot. I have peace offerings with me. I paid my vows. I have spiritually done everything right. But yet, they're still wrong. Makes everything inviting and nice in 16 and 17. Then it comes and says, verse 18, Come with me, 19, my husband is gone. We can get away with this. He's not coming home till the new moon. Verse 20, we're good. No one will ever know. Verse 21, with her enticing speech, she causes him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately he went after her, as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, to an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Growing up, we had uh, sheep for a while, then we had pigs. And, you know, part of my job was to help load them out for market. And I still remember at a very young age, watching the sheep get loaded up, watching the pigs get loaded up, and seeing them, maybe you threw some hay down to attract them or something like that. And at a young age, I just remember, they don't realize they're going to their death. Yeah, it's just always hit me. They're going to their death. You know, I don't know what it is for kids that maybe don't live on a farm. Growing up on a farm, you realize right from the beginning, I'm going to eat you. <laughs> you know, I know from the beginning, I'm going to eat you. I remember it was Kenan distinctly one day. He was eating a chicken leg, eating a chicken leg. And he asked about where chicken comes from. Chicken, well, what is it called? Chicken, it comes from chicken. Okay, and he's processing this. He looks outside, and I remember this. He saw our chickens walking around. And he just, you just saw him, looked at the chicken, looked at the leg, looked at the chicken, looked at the leg. And it hit him. Where chicken comes from. I see this in 22. Immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Oh man, it's not worth it. I've had people sit in my office before and they say, I don't know what I was thinking. This wasn't worth it. It's not. 
It's not worth it in any way whatsoever. So therefore, 24, now therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not strain into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Let me remind you what we started with. Purity. Purity in your married life. Purity in your single life. Marriage is honorable. The bed undefiled. Spiritual purity. You're betrothed, going to be married to Jesus Christ. You want to be pure in this world in all ways and all things. And let me just remind as well too, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, that the sins are cast into the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west. Do not let Satan play mind games with you on that. Let me also just remind you as well too, Joel 2 and Isaiah 61, beauty for ashes and God wants to restore the years that the locusts took. Don't let the enemy get in your mind on this because I know that's how he works. I know how he works. The Bible says do not be ignorant of his devices. We know that. So let's pray this into our lives. Let's apply this into our lives and all that we say and do. Worship team, if you want to come forward. Lord, as we just come to you now, we want to be pure in thought, action, and deed, pure in marriage, pure as a single, and most importantly, spiritually pure in Jesus Christ. That's what matters, Lord. Help us to not just talk about it, but to live it out, to really seek you in all that we say and do. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you for being a God that forgives and gives us second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seven chances. We love you. In your name, amen.